This is a Diet of Brussels. In this episode, I'm interviewing Kevin Hickson, who is a senior lecturer in politics at the Department of Politics at the University of Liverpool. Uh, we talk about being an activist and an academic, and we talk about the left uh, and its critical perspectives on European integration. At various points, we mention uh, my book, uh, which is me, uh, which is the uh, Routledge Handbook on Euroscepticism, which you can find more information on at the Routledge uh, website. Uh, I'm very happy to recommend it because I helped edit it, and uh, it's got lots of stuff about Euroscepticism. So Kevin liked it too, and you'll hear more about his comments uh, in this interview. So a couple of areas we're going to talk about. Uh, we're going to talk a bit about your work in relation to Brexit uh, and what you see going on, um, but also talk a bit about the role of the academic mm -hmm. as a participant in public life, mm -hmm. uh, whether that's as a commentator or as a, an activist. Uh, so we'll come back to that in, in a, a bit. Uh, what for you has been the most salient aspect of, of Brexit, of this process? You know, what how does your research fit with what you've seen and how has it enlightened either the research or the process? What? Okay. Uh, well, over the last few years, certainly I've been... Um, well, all my professional life have been an academic, but certainly over the last few years as well, I've been uh, an activist, so a local councillor, parliamentary candidate, and so on. So I've been the, done the academic work on Brexit and also the, the, the activism, as it were, on Brexit. Uh, I've never been um, a, a, what you would call a Euro enthusiast, I suppose. Um, but even at the start of 2016, in the run up to the referendum, was sort of torn between being a reluctant Remain and thinking it'd be very difficult to to withdraw because we were so involved in the European Union, and. Um, then started to listen to the debates and the arguments were put forward on both sides and came to the view that it was uh, better off uh, leaving. So then I started to get involved in the Leave campaign. Um, I think one of the issues for me with the Leave campaign was the media attention was almost entirely focused on the right, whereas I was, uh, was classifying myself as a left Eurosceptic. So I was involved in groups like Labour Leave and so on, uh, which didn't really get much uh, media attention. And then when I started to, to express the view that I was a, a Eurosceptic, I think people were quite surprised because, uh, and certainly I've had this discussion with students, uh, they uh, sometimes see it because of the media uh, direction as something which is um, inherently right-wing, really. And I don't mm. think it is. So what I've tried to do in my academic work is to uh, bring out the, the nature of left Euroscepticism or social democratic Euroscepticism, um, mostly in the UK, but increasingly looking at more uh, comparative focus as well, really. So there's lots of elements in that. Let's, let's talk a bit firstly about sort of the, the left's mm -hmm. critique of European integration. Clearly, mm -hmm. at different points in post-war history, that has been more or less prominent. Mm -hmm. And we might think about Michael Furtz, mm -hmm. uh, we might think about the opposition back in the, the 60s. What for you is 
the driver of the change in the the position on the left or the prevalence of oppositional positions you know is it about party politics or is it more about ideology i mean do you see consistency or do you see change in, in that long run view okay well, I, I, I think the, the argument which some of your authors address in your book about the difference between an ideological focus and a more strategic focus uh, ultimately I think those two things you can't break down so that they're, they're, they're very much together so in the Labour Party it became a more pro-European party in the late 80s it was partly because of the generation the, 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 the modern part of the modernization process that Kinnock was was leading it was uh, to distance themselves from the 83 manifesto which included of course the commitment to withdraw from the European economic community as it was um, it was also because the nature of European integration was changing or appeared to be changing with a more social policy focus. And um, also because uh, the, the Conservatives were becoming more Eurosceptic under Thatcher with the Bruce speech and, and, and things that that was led on to. Um, so it's partly uh, strategic reason I think the Labour Party became more pro-European, but when it's been uh, there are certainly ideologically committed pro-Europeans in the Labour Party, and they've been very vocal uh, since Brexit, since the referendum. And there are um, ideologically committed Eurosceptics, uh, and they're certainly not all contained on the left, so we tend to think of Labour Party Euroscepticism as being something that's predominant during the periods of 80 to 83 under Michael Foote and Tony Benn's direction and so on. Uh, but of course there's also been a longer term social democratic tradition of Euroscepticism, which is what I've tried to, uh, what I've been writing about really. Going back really since the, the first discussions about European integration at the end of the Second World War with Attlee, uh, Bevin, Dalton, Morrison, um, taking a, a more critical view, and then certainly um, under Gatesco of course with this uh, conference speech about the end, end of a thousand years of history and so on. Um, but also the likes of Jay and Peter Shaw and, and currently writing a, a biography of, of Peter Shaw, who I think his influence on, or significance has been neglected, really. So that... Why has that critique not been more prominent? Is it is it a crowding out by the the work of the left, of the right... You know that post Bruges speech, post eighty eight mm -hmm. period, that simply somehow catches the debates and you know becomes mm -hmm. the dominant frame. Is is it simply that, or is it that? How effective do you feel that that critique has been in the longer run? Is it something you see coming back now in the the post referendum period as well as part of shaping paths that the UK might follow? Well, I certainly think it, it, the Euroscepticism of the Labour Party was crowded out. There's a clip of uh, Jeremy Corbyn and Peter Shaw speaking at the Labour Party conference where they're complaining about the, the pro-European direction that the party had taken and Shaw was saying that the, the conference wasn't even allowed to have a proper discussion about Europe and although he accepted that his, his own position had become a minority one within the party, he, he was saying that it once was... Yeah, uh, a mainstream position in the party and it had been effectively silenced and then the, with the change of generation I think the pro-European direction of the party has only become greater really and and certainly uh, and I can speak from, from direct experience with this with the, the Labour Party 
um, effectively was a pro-Remain organisation. So even at uh, branch meetings, constituency meetings, there was no real debate. Uh, debate was stifled deliberately within the the party, and, and I, yeah, I had direct experience of that in terms of, of there not being able to be discussions in the party for and against continued membership of the European Union, really. Deliberately by who? Is that a leadership question? Is that a more pervasive issue? Because I mean, you know, we often talk about mm -hmm. the difficulty that the Conservatives have about talking about Europe, but Labour also clearly has yes. mm -hmm. those same difficulties. Mm -hmm. so, so where is the source of the difficulty in the Labour Party? You know, is it structural? Is it about individuals? Is it something else? Mm. Well, the, the, the experience I had in speaking as, as somebody who was a Labour Party member at the time and subsequently left the Labour Party uh, was that it did come down through the the party machine, so it's not necessarily the leader, then certainly the, uh, the, the the office staff, the regional offices and so on, uh, were very reluctant to have uh, allow that sort of discussion going on within the Labour Party. I think consequently, as a result, it, it, and this is at my own ideological viewpoint coming out really, but it, I think the Labour Party has then suffered really because it hasn't been able to have that discussion about what should happen, it's effectively frozen uh, with the referendum result uh, and it hasn't been able to have a, a reasonable discussion. Now, there are people trying to create debate uh, within the party, I'm thinking of uh, Labour peers like Morris Glasburn or, or the uh, John Mills Labour Leave um, organisation, but they're very much marginalised I think within the, within the party which is still overwhelmingly, I would say, pro-European really. And that, that really kind of shades down into the next question, which is where mm -hmm. is the Labour Party now? Is it what what for you is the determinant of policy? Is it about where members are? Is it about where leadership is? Is it about the the opportunities that present themselves mm -hmm. in relation to the government's action or inaction mm -hmm. and confusion? You know, if if the government settled on a position, would that then have a marked impact on where Labour is in terms of being able to define itself in, in opposition in both senses? I think the, the, the difficulty for the Labour Party is that it, it can't reach a position. So in, in some ways the Conservatives are like that, but uh, over what exactly the deal should look like, what the post-Brexit, what the trading relationships and so on should look like, but I think, uh, and the, the Liberal Democrats in contrast have been consistent, but they've been consistently against uh, Brexit with a few minorities, a few uh, dissenting voices, really. Uh, but the Labour Party can't reach agreement on the fundamentals, really, of whether it would be better to, to stay in. The when surveys are done, the majority of, of, of people who are, uh, like the recent poll about Unite members and so on, um, and, and Labour Party members, would be, their position would be pro European. Of course, they're led by someone who, historically at least, was always on the Eurosceptic wing of the party. So there doesn't seem to be scope for any um, uh, fundamental agreement within the party about where it moves on, really. I think that's the, the difficulty that the Labour Party faces, fundamentally, as to whether uh, to stay in, or, or certainly whether to stay in the, the customs union, the single market, and, and, and so on. You talk about Jeremy Corbyn, and I guess for many listeners that will be a, 
a key kind of question you know what's mm -hmm. what's his role in all of this mm -hmm. and certainly from my perspective it seems that his initial period in power has been more about consolidating his his base within the party mm -hmm. rather than about beyond the party mm -hmm. um, that seems to have been a relatively successful project mm -hmm. that uh, Corbyn momentum have got uh, uh, seemingly a, a, a long or a medium term mm -hmm. position of strength that mm -hmm. they can build from does that then at some point translate into that historical Euroscepticism of, of Corbyn himself feeding through into policy or or is he limited? Is he always going to be limited in what he can do? Because you talked about sort of ambivalence, but mm -hmm. you know, given that structure and particularly the way the Labour Party is structured in terms of procedure, mm -hmm. uh, the rule book that it has, are they able to use that then to to impose their their views more effectively uh, on the rest of the party? Mm. Well, I certainly agree with you that Corbyn uh, is in a is in a very skilled position as uh, leader of the party in a court, uh, for some time that looked in doubt there was a second leadership contest and so on which only really served to to help Corbyn because the 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 opponents to Corbyn couldn't really agree on a leadership candidate yeah. and then the leadership candidate that I got was rather ineffective really um so that the, there were certainly people who I knew who'd not voted for Corbyn first time who then voted for him really out of sympathy the second time um and of course since then the party membership has changed some people have left who can't support Corbyn, lots more have joined who do support Corbyn. Uh, so, his, and then of course the the, the election um, last year very much consolidated his position because he did a lot better than uh, people were expecting. Really, so in that sense, you know, Corbyn's leadership is very uh, secure. Uh, the Eurosceptics within the party, such as they are, aren't really likely to to push against Corbyn because they know that any uh, likely successor is going to be more pro-European. Than Corbyn. Uh, Corbyn's instincts, as I said, historically certainly has always been on the the, the Eurosceptic side of, of debates, but I, I don't think he can move the party significantly in the Eurosceptic direction, partly because the PLP uh, does not wish to move in that direction, mm. but also his, his own support base, as you mentioned, uh, in Momentum, so is, uh, is very much divided. The younger members in Momentum are, are more pro-European, and I think that's one of the difficulties that Corbyn faces, that his instincts might be Eurosceptic, but he can't really come out and say so because a lot of his supporters are pro-European. So I think the party uh, has had to adopt a kind of um, uh, more strategic position of, of trying to attack the Conservatives where they think they're weakest, rather than formulating their own position. And you could say that's what oppositions are for, really. You could, but you can also take the other. Mm -hmm. Again, you know, thinking about Corbyn's brand, a lot of that's grounded in his authenticity. You know, he says what he thinks, and you know that's why he was mm -hmm. never very enthusiastic about the EU because mm -hmm. he's not mm -hmm. very enthusiastic about the EU. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, there is always that tension in oppositional politics of how mm -hmm. much mm -hmm. you're defined by mm -hmm. government, um, which is clearly a problem. Um, You've mentioned Labour Leave uh, a couple of times, and mm -hmm. some listeners, I think, probably won't be as familiar for the reasons that you say. And maybe yeah, it's worth no. thinking a bit about, or discussing a bit about why you think that left-wing critique never got as much traction in the referendum and indeed since mm -hmm. in the media 
mm-hmm. but also what Labour leaves activities were, and I think more importantly have been. You know, how have mm-hmm. how has that group adapted since uh, two thousand and sixteen? Mm-hmm. Well, as I said, I think within the Labour Party the, there was a very much a, a remain uh, bias. Uh, within the media, attention inevitably, really, I suppose, focused on the more colourful characters who were uh, promoting Brexit, the Farages and the, the, the Boris Johnsons and the, the Jacob Rees Marks and so on. So they got the most of the the media attention. So it's a mi- very much a minority position, really, within media coverage of, of the referendum and within the Labour Party. But as I said, I think it is ref- it does uh, reflect that longer term tradition which has always been there of if not outright opposition to European integration certainly of a more sceptical more suspicious attitude towards European integration uh, there was there was grassroots uh, campaigning my, my main involvement with Labour League was in terms of, of writing two uh, pamphlets with the likes of Austin Mitchell and John Mills and so on uh, making that case for, for a uh, more left-wing uh, Brexit what, how would you those collections mm-hmm. can, are available online um, what would you say is the kind of the core of that you know what's that case what, you know what's the central proposition of yeah. how does how does Brexit advance left leaning values well certainly I think that it's part it's bound up with notions of, of sovereignty uh, but also of, of internationalism so the the internationalism of the left Eurosceptics want to see. Uh, historically, we're concerned about the impact that the, the membership of the EC had on the Commonwealth and so on. Um, now they see that they wish to promote an internationalism which transcends the European the boundaries of the European Union, uh, but also about sovereignty. That being a member of the European Union would stop. Um, this is the argument with, that um, social democratic Eurosceptics would make would stop certain things from happening in, in government more radical economic policies and so on You mentioned nationalism there and, you mm-hmm. know, for some that might seem an odd thing for left leaning sorry no internationalism well, but, okay, so, yes. mm-hmm. but also the, in terms of sovereignty mm-hmm. you know, which is mm-hmm. you know, kind of a national mm-hmm. construct mm-hmm. You know there are theorists. You know you've you mentioned the book, and you know, some of those the- theorists are there. He say you know that's what actually is a, the underlying feature of Euroscepticism is nationalism, whether it's on the left or on the right. That mm-hmm. uh, it gives the opportunity on the left to pursue effective mm-hmm. programs of social protection, support, and development. Mm-hmm. And then there's a more familiar argument on, on the right. How much do you think that that works as an argument? You know about a defining feature of Euroscepticism, that there is that kind of defence of the national in broad terms, you know, mm-hmm. whether that's in, say, in terms of sovereignty or in terms of nationalism. Mm-hmm. I, I think that um, could be made to resonate more with Labour Party activists, Labour Party voters, who wish to see a more radical uh, Labour government than, than certainly the period from 1997 to 2010, uh, which um, elicits various uh, emotions, I think, amongst Labour supporters, Labour activists. 
uh, of outright hostility over things like Iraq, but more generally a sense of disappointment about what could have been achieved with the size of the majority that Labour had between 97 and 2010. So I think there is a desire amongst Labour Party activists to see a more radical Labour government, which is why they swung to Jeremy Corbyn in such numbers. And the belief that that radical reforming government would be curtailed by, in, in terms of what it could do by organisations such as the European Union could create a more Eurosceptic um, uh, attitude, I think. And certainly, the, the, we talked before about Corbyn's supporters, that the, the younger activists, in general terms, um, are more pro-European, but Corbyn also has a group of, of older activist people, certainly people I think are around in the, the battles of the early 80s, mm. um, who are more inclined to a, to a Eurosceptic um, direction on, on that sort of logic, really. And where were those older supporters positioned? Were they positioned more on the, the, the modernising side or more on the, the traditional side of the party? It mod sorry, modernising and traditional in terms of what? In terms of, well, if you think about the, the tension between uh, Kinnock and uh, mm -hmm. militant kind of uh, groups in the party, you mm -hmm. know, how much, you know, what's the relationship between the, that more progressive side and the, the side that had a more kind of uh, socialist in, in the, the old-fashioned sense? I mean, it's not really the right term, but... The, Mm -hmm. a restrictive kind of sense, you know, is does that is that mapped on to attitudes towards Europe? Or is that is it cut across in in a different kind of way? I think certainly the the, the, the people who I've encountered in the party who are around in the early eighties and are now supporting Jeremy Corbyn um, would be more inclined to a Eurosceptic mm. direction because they see it as a constraint on what a future Labour government could do. Uh, whereas, as I said, Corbyn's younger generation of supporters tend to be much more pro-European. And, uh, and that is one of the, the issues that no doubt you know, Corbyn is struggling with, really, because his, support, his own support base is, is divided on the issue of Europe. It's not just that, it's not that Corbyn's supporters are universally pro-European or Eurosceptic. There is that divide there. Um, so there, there are... I think the Eurosceptic debate cuts across pro-Corbyn supporters and anti-Corbyn people, really. Yeah, you know, it's always one of these strange things is that it never, you know, whatever party you look at, it never quite fits other categorisations. Mm -hmm. And I think mm -hmm. that's part of the reason perhaps why parties have found it so mm -hmm. difficult is mm -hmm. that it doesn't sit neatly in other debates. Um, and obviously you see that in the Conservatives, but you know, to a certain extent you see that with the Lib Dems where you see mm -hmm. some critical voices mm -hmm. uh, in the Greens, that kind of tension mm -hmm. of mm -hmm. ideology and practice. Mm -hmm. uh, not so much in UKIP, though, isn't it? No. So much. Well, with the exception of UKIP, of course. I mean, the, the Eurosceptism has always been an issue which is, or European integration has always been an issue which has divided both parties. That's all, yeah. always been one of the reasons why it's so difficult to deal with, I think, in, in British politics. There isn't a pro-European party, the Eurosceptic party. Never has been a pro-European Eurosceptic party. The no. pro-European and Eurosceptic wings within the Conservatives, within Labour, and as you said, at certain times, one of those wings is is stronger. And since 
the mid-80s, it's, it's been the pro-European wing which has been strongest within the Labour Party. Which prompts an obvious question of, is all this likely to prompt a party realignment, that you're going to see a split, a new mm -hmm. cleavage between pro and anti-EU mm. that overtakes the current party mm -hmm. organisation? Is that viable, realistic? Um, I don't think it will, partly because of the, the political electoral system, the, uh, the effects of first-past-the-post, um, but also because, uh, as various contributors say in your book, that Euroscepticism is not a single defined ideology. It's, it's, it's united in terms of what it's against, of course. Uh, but there are lots of different shades of Euroscepticism. Um, so, social democratic or socialist Eurosceptics are Eurosceptic for reasons very different to, to what by right wing um, politicians are Eurosceptic. So, it's unlikely to, that you'd see a common cause between those different elements, I think. We talked about party politics. Mm -hmm. I, I, I mentioned at the, the beginning, I also like to talk sort of about being an activist and as you've already said uh, you've been an activist in different kinds of ways mm -hmm. um, what's been the reaction from other academics to being an activist to being an activist I think uh, there's generally been interest and support I think a lot of academics are activists in, in different ways they, they wish to promote a certain argument or certain cause, they get involved not necessarily in party politics but they get involved in uh, different uh, social movements, uh, media work, whatever it is, but they're, they're activists in different ways really, particularly uh, amongst uh, political scientists, mm. um, that we are um, commentators on the political process but we also have our own particular ideological viewpoints. Uh, so I think there was, there was interest in, and, and support for that. I think the majority of academics uh, who I have encountered certainly have been on the pro-European side um, of, of the Brexit debate. Um, so that, that, that's been more uh, interesting, shall we say, than... Um, Can I probe <laughs> on, on the interesting thing? Because, you know, my impression is, as you say, is mm -hmm. you also say, mm -hmm. is that most academics are mm -hmm. pro EU, pro Remain, mm -hmm. and where I've seen academics who've expressed uh, positions about the desirability of leaving the EU, I don't see them getting much in the way of positive comment. Now, I don't know whether that's what my just because my Twitter timeline looks mm -hmm. the way it does, or whether that's your experience too. I mean, is it just you know, is the debate civil, constructive, polite? Uh, well, I, I think your your Twitter timeline is accurate in the sense that the, the majority of academics, um, certainly in our subject area, are on the remain side of the of the debate, um, and it's. Just as in, in amongst popular debate, amongst academic debate as well, it's it's an issue which has created a lot of uh, a lot of heat. So there have been some quite um, interesting discussions. Uh, 
but I, I yeah I think that was inevitable really and I think that was also one of the reasons why academics started to to develop networks like uh, full Brexit and so on do you want to say a bit about Full Brexit? Because this is uh, uh, a relatively new group. I think it was only set up last month, month before. Yeah, uh, well, I, I'm a signatory to it. I mean, I, I went to uh, their initial seminar uh, at the LSE. They're primarily um, academics, but there are others there as well. Um, and they very much, I think, reflect the view which we started off talking about, that left Euroscepticism, social democratic Euroscepticism, has been crowded out, and it's an attempt to try and promote those uh, those arguments within the academy, where, as you said, the, the majority of academics are on the Remain side of the debate. So with the, I think the, the, um, so I'm a signatory to it. I don't know what their uh, future plans are. Uh, but it's a group which was interested in, which I'm quite happy to, to support and put the name to. So in terms of, well, I don't know what their future plans are, so we, we won't speculate, but you know, in terms of what their current activity is, mm -hmm. there's, uh, I think there's a website, mm -hmm. uh, there were some pieces that uh, mm -hmm. I think the organisers had put mm -hmm. together in, in national press. Mm -hmm. uh, what, I think part of the, you know, looking at the, the, the reaction to that, part of the discussion is it discussion well part of the comment that i saw maybe mm -hmm. is more accurate was that the website seemed to have a, a relatively short statement of intent but mm -hmm. then was about uh, i think the phrase was a marketplace of ideas mm -hmm. that uh it was not about having a program mm -hmm. but rather about trying to create a space and is that an accurate kind of yeah and, and and certainly that's what i uh, signed up to and it does feed into everything that we've talked about so far about the, the, the most media attention was on right-wing Euroscepticism, uh, that the Labour Party was um, had crowded out Eurosceptic arguments, that most academics are on the Remain side of the discussion. So it was an attempt to try, try and create a forum whereby you could uh, make those arguments for a more left-wing the uh, variant of, of Brexit. What, what's been the reaction? Uh, how has that has that been successful in your first impressions? You know, have you been able to make that space in which you can have that discussion? Well, as I said, I, I'm not one of the central organisers of, of the full Brexit, so I can't mm. really. I'm not sure I can answer that really. But it, certainly, it was. Uh, uh, the the seminar which I attended was was um, was very positive. I think uh, a lot of informed discussion. Um, quite liberating to be able to have those discussions within an academic environment. Really, mm. what for you would be a a mark of success of the things you talked about, both whether it's about activism but also about the, the kind of the mm -hmm. broader theoretical approach, you know, how would these things be reflected in the shape of a Brexit deal, whether the, the withdrawal agreement or the longer term relationship? Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, first of all, I think the Labour Party needs to um, to move on from those uh, in-out uh, arguments that we had at the time of the referendum um, and accept uh, that we will be leaving 
the European Union. For me, that means also leaving things like the customs union and the single market. Uh, but it also then means developing a more radical set of proposals. Because no doubt once Brexit happens, in whatever shape or form it happens, uh, then the right will be pushing their free market agenda. So the Labour Party needs to be able to, uh, to respond to that. Um, and part of that is academics feeding into those discussions, which I think is where full Brexit would, would fit into that. So you, so you see it more as a counterweight to that neoliberal, conservative kind of discourse, or or is it something that you see actually shaping a particular type of, of outcome? Well, I think so. I'm not sure that's a, this is a, a real choice, but no, I think those two things are, are are very much the same, really. So there needs to be a, a counterweight to free market euroscepticism from the right, but that would also, in order to be a true counterweight, that would also involve developing particular policy proposals. And um, which what? are the sorts of things which were put forward in the two Labour Leave pamphlets, which which I did. Okay. Yeah, I, I, again, I, it's it's that point which, again, you're talking about Euroscepticism. You know, Euroscepticism mm-hmm. is typically defined by it's been a negative, you know, it's been mm-hmm. against mm-hmm. some aspects of European integration, mm-hmm. which is not necessarily the same, well, it's not the same as a positive programme. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you can also, of course, be against aspects of European integration without being um, committed to to, uh, to to leaving the European Union and going back to some of the early writing on um, Euroscepticism, Jim Bullpit, for instance, said that there were the Euro pragmatists who he said were sitting around waiting for Godot. Yeah. Um, now, in effect, that Godot arrived in the shape of the referendum. So, those who would classify themselves as Euro pragmatists, I suppose, I was one of them at one point, had to decide on which, yeah, which side of that. Uh, fence there was and given that there was no real likelihood of fundamentally reshaping the European Union I don't think then the only alternative really was to to leave Um, now that so far I mean that would unite the right and the left but the right would want to leave for their own reasons the left would want to leave for theirs the the right had been uh, pushing their agenda very vigorously but the left hasn't really I think that's where the space where the, the vacuum is really and for me, one of the striking things has been is we've talked a lot, you know, we talk a lot about the difficulties and the problems or the practicalities of leaving, and we talk much less about where we're leaving to or what mm-hmm. the destination mm-hmm. might be. Uh, does that match your experience of the debate? Is it more, you know, have we lost sight of where this might be heading rather than, you know, you know how much? Do we need to have that endpoint in sight? Mm-hmm. And if so, what should that endpoint be? Or at least how do we get to defining what that endpoint should be? Well, I think it was inevitable that we we become embroiled in the actual process of leaving, like the, the, the uh, conflict between the Commons and the laws over the withdrawal bill. Uh, what exactly the terms of the withdrawal should be, should be and now the, the, the terms of trade with the European Union once we've left and so on. Um, so I think that was a, that was always going to be uh, part of the process, but I think the right 
have um, still have a vision of, of what the end point or what a post-Brexit Britain would look like. I think the left have become, I mean the Labour Party essentially, have become entirely embroiled in that process and, and have lost um, sight of, of, what, of a post-Brexit Britain, really. How would you characterise that right-wing view of what the end point is? Mm-hmm. Well, I, I, I think uh, essentially about uh, a, a lower tax, uh, less regulated economy, uh, but with with greater controls over immigration. I think those are the issues which enthuse the right Eurosceptics. Uh, the the left, as I said, have rather lost, uh, become embroiled in the process. For some, it's about trying to halt or reverse the process. Uh, for others, it's about trying to manage the process. But they they've still lost sight of the end goal, really. Mm. Last question is kind of just coming back to this notion of internationalism, which is very much a, mm-hmm. a concept of, of the left. What for you are the the opportunities that the UK could be taking, but isn't necessarily taking at this point? I, you know, if I look around the international system, I can see things happening, which might be good things or bad things. But I, I'm just interested in kind of your your take on what you, what what things did you have in mind. I'm just thinking about the transatlantic relationship at the mm. moment. I'm thinking about the shifting weight of the global economy. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm thinking about uh, the impact of climate change as a part of recasting international cooperation. Mm-hmm. How do all of these things fit together? You, know, I, you can see opportunities, you can see risks, but mm-hmm. you know, how does, in, in the concept of internationalism, you talked about the Commonwealth as part of that, but mm. also more broadly and generically is the UK as part of a global system. Mm. What what should the UK be pushing at or you know, is it pushing at anything and are there things that it's not pushing at? Right. Well I I think one of the difficulties of course for the for the left is how to deal with America, particularly under Trump. Uh but an alternative uh, system in in America might be um, much more attractive to to those on the left in Britain. Thinking the sorts of the kind of agenda that uh, Sanders pushed in the presidential, um, in the Democratic nomination process. Uh, the, the Commonwealth, as you said, is is particularly uh, should be particularly significant for for those on the left of revived reform Commonwealth. Um, the Developing links with uh, developing countries much more, I think. Uh, also maintaining the the focus on the uh, on climate change, as you mentioned, uh, should be a priority for the left because there are certainly not 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 all by any means, but there are certainly uh, some Eurosceptics who are sceptical also of, of uh, global warming and so on. Uh, so the left should also be pushing those sorts of agendas, developing links with organisations. Not just with the EU. Okay. Thank you very much, Kevin, and uh, it's been a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you.